With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to another episode of Japan's favourite cricket podcast because Zero Dutch Given, it is official, is the number one cricket podcast in Japan. Behind us in second place, Eating Our Dust is the final word cricket podcast. Excellent podcast. We do love Adam and Jeff here at Zero Dutch Given. And in third place, it is the legendary Cricket Chanomi Banashi. Japanese cricket podcast is in third place, but top of the pile, it is the one and only Zero Dots given. So we'd like to say hello and arigato to all of our Japanese listeners. So thank you very much for downloading the latest episode of Zero Dots given. Um, Stephen Finn, if you turned up in Japan, it'd be absolutely bloody terrifying because I went to Japan and they thought I was a freak. And you've got an extra two inches on me in many departments. So um, you'd be you'd be quite the sight for sore eyes in Tokyo. Have you ever been? No, no, I haven't. No, I um, somewhere that I'd love to go. Tokyo is high on my list of places that I would like to visit, especially when I'm feeling inadequate about something. I can always go there and have a fuss made over my height. But yeah, I, I've not been there. But I would imagine that that our height would be would be something slightly out of the ordinary. Well, to be honest, now with our success of this podcast, it, we probably can't go back to Tokyo now because we'll be mobbed. We won't be able to walk down the streets in pieces. We're the host of Zero Dots Given Podcast. Do you know, I once uh, I flew into Beijing once and I have been in the middle of nowhere with my dad. And because Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was sold to so many countries, he we were in Brunei. He was like the Pope when he arrived. That's there's how, a lot of expats in Brunei, though. There's yeah, places there, aren't there? Exactly. So there lots of countries of expats buy used to buy who wants to be a millionaire. So he was recognizable everywhere. And uh, we turned up in Beijing airport, and as soon as we got off the plane, two very excited Chinese ladies ran up to us with cameras asking for a photo. And I thought, here we go. Do you want me to take it? Because I've spent my whole childhood taking photos of people with my dad. 
Um, and the ladies pushed my dad out the way, gave him the camera and stood either side of me for a photo because of how tall I was. And I've never felt more alive. <laughs> uh, the only problem was initially, I was like, this is amazing. This is so nice. Dad taking photos of me and people for once. And then after about six hours of being stopped every 10 meters, it did become quite tiresome. But uh, thank you very much to the people in Japan listening. So Daniel Norcross, there's, there's probably murals of you on streets in Tokyo now. Uh, I would imagine so. Korawasakoradesa, by the way, um, which means is that a cherry blossom? I, I speak passable Japanese as a result of having worked in Westminster Abbey Bookshop in 1992. <laughs> and the only, it's true, the, the only way to um, to keep out, the out of context, tourists... Daniel Norcross. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose so. Uh, but the only way to keep Japanese tourists in line, because th what they will do, uh, unless you speak a little bit of Japanese, is that they will take the book. I say they, this is a massive generalization, but the <laughs> tour groups that I was dealing with would take the books and wave them at you and shout Korewa a lot, which basically means, you know, how much. And I was uh, I was a bit distressed by this. So I asked their tour guide, you know, how can I like bring order to the chaos here in Poet's Corner? You know, it's Poet's Corner, it's a sacred place. Thomas Cranmer and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, George Friedrich Handel. And uh, she said, she said, well, uh, how much do these books cost? I said, well, they're two pounds. She goes, Nippondo. So how much is that book? Sangpondo Goju. And that one, well, if you put them together, that's Gupondo Goju. So the next day, when they came in, I just shouted, Nippondo. And suddenly they formed an orderly line. And they're absolutely marvelous. And I was so inspired by that, I went and read Haruki Marukami's Kafka on the Shore which is a beautiful, beautiful book. I recommend it to anybody. But perhaps nothing is as beautiful as the lyrics from that Alphaville song, Big in Japan, that we were just playing. And I think my favourite my favorite stanza probably will, will get the juices going. Neon on my naked skin, passing silhouettes of strange illuminated mannequins. Shall I stay here at the zoo, or shall I go and change my point of view for other ugly scenes? Well, I've changed my point of view other ugly scenes and somehow created a segue out of nothing that was sort of beautiful and sort of complete bollocks and that's sort of a that's sort of a niche that you've carved for yourself in your broadcasting career Norcross <laughs> sort of, yep, someone's yeah. going to do it <laughs> <laughs> now um, you know speaking of being starstruck and uh, being doughy eyed and impressed by people um, Steve Smith and Shay Pajara are now playing at Sussex. They are officially Stephen Finn's teammates. Pajara, of course, just scored 100 in the county championship. Stephen Smith is on British shores. He's been netting for Sussex. Stephen Finn, have you had much uh, interaction with those two giants of the game? Well, I have, yeah. I played the whole year last year with Chiteshwa Pajara. Um, so I've had a good amount of interactions with him. Um, and he is now my captain. Uh, here at Sussex and Steve Smith got here arrived in Hove yesterday actually and had a net session received a beamer off one of the net bowlers um, <laughs> a neck high beamer off one of the net bowlers um, good man give that man a knighthood excellent work <laughs> luckily it didn't um, it didn't hurt him I think he managed to fend it off with his glove but would have been um, a little bit a little bit rattled you'd imagine I think the net bowler was probably even more rattled poor fellow he would have been so nervous what, um, was it was it a Sussex bowler? Was it genuinely like a, a proper net bowler that you'd? I think got? it was a net bowler. Yeah, I think it was either a guy from the leagues or um, one of the young academy lads. Um, apparently, bowled really nicely in the net up to that point, and then just slipped in a beamer. Oh, that <laughs> a good is good one as well. That's terrible. We had uh, two of the bowlers, the South African overseas that we used to have at our club. 
were on Sky Sports News bowling in the nets at the England batsman once. And uh, poor Hoppy, Hoppy, if you're listening to this, it, they cut live to the England nets and it was him just getting smoked for six after six after six in the background. So uh, sorry about to bring that up there, Hoppy. But uh, Hoppy, he, Hoppy, Hoppy. I mean, so, sorry, you've got to expand on this. There's, there's only two reasons I can think of why he'd be called Hoppy and neither of them suggest he'd make a good net bowler. One, <laughs> he bowls a series of long hops or two, he hops. Uh, no, uh, unfortunately, it's very boring. His name's Ian Hopton. And as all cricketers will know, to get a nickname, you just get a bit of their name and add a Y on the end. So I'm Probably sorry. Hoppo. That's... Hoppo would be a good one, wouldn't it? Yeah. In Australia. In Australia, or Hopsy. Hoppo. Hoppo. Mm. Hopsy. Well, Hopsy, then he'd have to share it with the uh, distinguished journalist David Hops, wouldn't he? But yeah, I suppose he can. I mean, didn't we discuss how uninventive... What was it? We didn't discuss recently the nickname for somebody that Finney and his teammates had. Boat. We were, that's right. Who was called Boat? Ali Orr. That's <laughs> right. Ali Orr is called Boat. So I don't think we'll trust you with the nickname creative. Thanks, Stephen. That's quite a good one. <laughs> now, sorry, so, sorry so, so, so before you go on, you, you mentioned there being starstruck, and um, I, I'm interested. So, so when like Steve Smith arrives and you, your poor net bowler comes in and throws that beamer at him, is that is that like a function? I mean, are people just a bit starstruck that one of the greatest batters of all time is suddenly in their midst. Because, I mean, I'd, I'd probably be a bit freaked out. Well, yeah, even yesterday. I mean, it definitely had a bit of an effect on the team. He came yesterday and had a net. And we had a team meeting in the morning at 10am. Um, and the second team were practicing at midday onwards. And Smith came in for a net with the second team. And everyone hung around and watched him batting. So the whole squad was there at the back of the net just watching Steve Smith practice for the first time and seeing how he went about it, which is one of the things that when you're, you know, people have been moaning about, oh, we're giving Australians practice and allowing them to come over and get used to conditions. I, I don't think that's the case. I think the the positive effect that it will have is for these guys to see how someone who is at the, the top of the world in batting for the last 10 years, how they go about it and how they operate. And yesterday he had a full audience in the nets. Um, it's just a shame that one of the young fellas slipped him a behemoth. Does, does he, does he, does he, off before every ball, even in the nets, does he do that? You know, pat knee, pat knee, pat groin, pat head, pat groin, pat knee, tap, tap, tap before every ball. Even I when I don't he think he does it quite that, that extensively. No. Does he still um, do extravagant leaves in the nets? Yeah, but not the noises, I don't think, and not the or anything like that. <laughs> um, were, were Tom Haynes and Ali Orr and the like not offended that you never all stick around and watch them having a net? Um, no, I don't think so. I, I think they, um, they've got a dose of realism about them. You've got to feel sorry for There must be whoever's batting, you know, in that sort of like number four slot for Sussex at the minute must be going, oh, great. Well, well Pajara. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, who's ever batting at three or wherever Steve Smith's going to go, you're like, great. Well, there, there's my place in the team gone for the next month. I can't compete. This guy averages 60 in about 100 tests. <laughs> now, Daniel Norcross, you're a man who um, has lived, you know, an eclectic life as we, mm. I mean, you know, bookstores in Poets Corner serving Japanese people, for example. Have you ever been starstruck by anyone in, in, in the many, many people you've met over the years? Well, when you're younger, you you get stars. I mean, I was starstruck by Michael Aspel when I was five at a church fete in Clapham. Uh, but, you know, you, you tend to be starstruck at five, don't you? Oh, Ethel's come. I'm speaking starstruck of, by spe Ethel. Speaking oh, of starstruck. she's knocked over oh, your mic. There she is. Speaking of starstruck. Uh, 
So, yeah, so, Starstruck but, uh, or Starfish? <laughs> oh, there it is. Hello. There's the view. There is the oh, view. She so, just ran so, away when we said Starfish. Bless her. She's not happy. <laughs> so, so brief, that. Uh, but, I mean, lately... She's, it's, very, it's one of she's those... very bashful for somebody who repeatedly shows us her arsehole. You know. oh, I think she's. Do you think bashful or coquettish? Anyway, um, starstruck. You you tend to stop being starstruck, don't you? When you sort of routinely have to interview lots of people. So, um, you know, like you got to interview Toby Jones and things like that on View from the Boundary and this and the other. But I have recently been starstruck. I was reduced to the age of a seven-year-old when I found myself in a restaurant in Dubrovnik, and my wife and I have this game we play where. You know, we spot people who look like people. So, for example, you know, while I was in Salamanca, there was a man who looked like the exact cross between um, Chinese artist Ai Weiwei and former South African fascist Eugene Terreblanche. So my my wife will say, oh, look, there's Ai Weiwei crossed with Eugene Terreblanche. And I'll turn around and go, oh, yeah. Or she'll say, oh, look, there's Sean Connery. And I'll go, young Sean Connery or old Sean Connery. You know, and she'll go. Yeah, young Sean Connery. The the hours must fly by Damn. in your household. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, you've got to do something to keep a 26-year relationship fresh. And uh, anyway, when I was in... And spotting people that look like South African dictators is the way to keep it fresh, is it? Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it works for us. <laughs> Anybody anyway. wants any marriage guidance counsel, come to me. So we were, we were in this entirely, I thought, empty restaurant in Dubrovnik. And she looked over my shoulder and she goes... Um, Oh, Roger Moore's here. And I said, young Roger Moore or old Roger Moore? And she said, the Roger Moore. And I turned, and fuck me if it wasn't the Roger Moore. And I, I was a quivering mass. I, I just nothing I could do. I, I couldn't, I, I, I'd always wanted to meet Roger Moore, and he was just there, and I couldn't go and see him. I was paralysed with starstruckery. And I don't know why it is. I think it might have been because I always wanted to be Simon Templar when I was a kid. or um. You know, his character in uh, The Persuaders. I know that's one for the kids, isn't it? Uh, or indeed, uh, James Bond. If but... the kids didn't turn off around South African dictator, we've really lost them now. We've lost all the kids <laughs> in Japan that were enjoying this podcast. We're no longer big in Japan. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, uh, Roger Moore did it for me. And I think it's something to do with, with age. I mean, have you been, you must have been starstruck every now and then. Um... Like, if you meet, like, I don't know, like, Klopp, would you be starstruck if you met? Klopp? Uh, I've, I have, I've not. Uh, I have met Klopp a couple of times, but I was very, very drunk, and I met Steven Gerrard once, but I was very, very drunk. So Ooh, that the both developing both, here. Yeah, both times I was actually just about kept it together. I'm very big on not actually saying or doing anything to them. However, when <laughs> I was so drunk in front of Jurgen Klopp, I did actually show him the photo of me dressed up as him for Halloween, and he loved it and burst out laughing, and then took the phone out my hand and showed it to all his friends and family that were nearby as well, because I looked so much like him, which was a beautiful one of my life moments. But uh, I was on the way to getting drunk, and that was the difference when I met Kenny Dalgleish, and I absolutely shat myself. Because yeah. I'd, I'd clocked he was in the room, and as soon as I saw him, I turned to my mum, Andy, and I went, That's the, the king's here, the king's here. We were very excited. And then a few minutes later, we are at some posh do, tap on my shoulder, and... This lady was going around serving croquettes on a tray and I reached to go and get one and there was a tap on my shoulder and a very gruff Scottish accent, which I won't attempt, said, what are those that you're eating? And I turned around and an inch from my face was Kenny Dalgleish 
and I absolutely panicked and I went, uh, 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 I think there's some sort of croquette. And he went <laughs> and he looked at me and then he reached past me, grabbed a croquette and went, thanks very much and walked away. And I've never seen him since, but if, and I hope it never happens, but if he passes without me meeting him again, that will be the only sentence I said to the greatest Liverpool footballer of all time is I believe it's some sort of croquette. So that was Ooh, a pretty low moment. That Stephen, is a low moment. Stephen Finn, have you ever been uh, starstruck by anyone that you've met? Other than me and Daniel? I have a couple of times. I went to the Watford boardroom um, and Vinnie Jones was in there and I had to sit next to Vinnie Jones and have lunch and... Yeah. The films Lockstock and and those gangster films from a while ago are some of my favourite ones to to sit down and watch. So yeah, I had to sit next to him and try my best not to um, just utter out quotes and sentences from those films, which which was tough work for an hour or so pre kickoff. I've got an in with Vinnie Jones, by the way. If you see him, you just say "Yidaho," and then he laughs hysterically. Because it's what Wimbledon shouted at Liverpool in the the tunnel on the way out to the 1988 FA Cup final, and his very first action in that winning FA Cup final with a goal from Laurie Sanchez, most highly qualified scorer of a winning goal in FA Cup history, with a two one economics from Reading, from a Kenny Dalglish loving <laughs> to fucking us losing the FA Cup final to the crazy. Oh, well, sorry guy. about that. But uh, the first thing he did after shouting "Yidaho" was to uh, pile into the back of Steve McMahon in the about 12th second of the match. Uh, a foul that would have today resulted not just in a red card, but a police caution and very possibly six months suspended sentence. But uh, he didn't even receive a yellow card. <laughs> Finny, did you uh, did you embarrass yourself or did you play it cool? No, I was pretty well behaved actually. But there was <laughs> I had to sit next to him for the football outside as well. And we were watching and Watford weren't playing very well. And we had this fella called Berghaus or Berghuis playing for us. And I just remember Vinnie Jones <laughs> sat there and he shouted, or he turned around to the director of football. He went, fucking Berghaus, more like shithouse. <laughs> <laughs> I was just sat there giggling to myself. Ever ever the professional, ever the professional. By, by um, the way, team, I, I have sent you a picture of the man who looks like a cross between Ai Weiwei and uh, Eugene Terreblanche to the WhatsApp group. Uh, and I no. think... You if didn't you take a it, subtle photo. You went straight up to his face and said, can I have a photo? Yeah, I did. Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't. Basically, he could see that we were continually looking at him and laughing. And um, and so I, I had to say something along the lines of, "Do you? That my, my wife thinks you look like an American version of Ai Weiwei, which um, uh, was better than telling him that he looked like a cross between Ai Weiwei and <laughs> celebrated Nazi <laughs> Eugene Terrebloch. So he agreed to have his photo taken in the street of Salamanca. Well, I uh, I don't know if uh, Stephen Finn's in the same boat, Finney, but um, I don't know what either of those people that Norcross has described oh, look like. Oh, just Google them. They're very it's just a random old man in the photo. <laughs> so, to exactly. so, to, so to me and Finney, you've just sent a photo of an old man in a black polo shirt to the WhatsApp right. group. I'm going to find them. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, whilst you're doing that, um, I do want to tell one final. I wasn't starstruck because it was in a work setting, which always makes it less uncomfortable. But the time that I interviewed Michael Caine on Radio X, Sir Michael Caine on Radio X, which was a huge honour. But I walked into, and I always try, and if you're interviewing somebody, you try and warm, warm them up beforehand and try and get some sort of rapport with them so the interview's a bit better. And I walked in, I knew he was a cricket fan. 
And I said, Michael, I'm going to keep this very, very quick because I know that you and I both want to watch the cricket because England were playing in a test match at the time. And uh, the first thing he said to me, he looked me dead in the eyes and he goes, don't tell me the bloody score. I'm recording <laughs> it and I don't want to know the fucking score. And I said, no, don't worry. I won't tell you the score. Uh, but that was the first sentence that Michael Caine said to me. So there's a cricket link in there somewhere. Now, speaking of legends and icons and heroes and being starstruck, there is only one man that springs to mind. Forget Sir Michael Caine and all the other legends that we've mentioned here, because it is the one and only Mr. Tim. Now, I call him Murta, but some people call him Murtag. Finney, what's his official pronunciation of his surname? Well, I think he takes the English version, which is Murta. Yeah, okay, good. Uh, Tim Murta, who took his 1,000th wicket over the weekend. Now, Finney, obviously, you're his teammate for a very long time. He's been on the podcast. He's a great friend of yours. But um, did you ever think in your wildest dreams when you first laid eyes upon him that he would be there years later taking his 1,000th wicket? Well, I suppose the like you, you always anticipate that he's a very good bowler first and foremost so you anticipate that he's going to take a lot of wickets but the thing that is amazing and having known this myself especially this year with the injury problems that I've had is the uh, the ability to stay fit and keep taking wickets um, is the most challenging thing as a fast bowler so for him to I mean fast he's not a fast bowler is he but he's a seam bowler who runs in 20 odd meters to deliver the ball and put significant pressure through his joints so yeah I think you wouldn't have known that he'd take this many wickets but um, I think it's more testament to the fact that he's managed to remain fit and miss very few games over the course of the last 20 years which has led to him taking this many wickets I should mention, by the way, it's a thousand wickets in all formats for Middlesex is the amazing record that he broke. I mean, the, the trick is, the key is, you know, he's just really focused on the, the Red Bull stuff the last few years, which is a nice throwback. He's a proper throwback bowler. Um, but also I was watching his, I was watching his tenfer that he took in the game on, uh, on Twitter the other day. And uh, it's the usual relentless line and length. But also with the keeper standing up now, Horrible to face as a batsman because you can't even, you know, plonk that front foot forwards and, and negate the swing and, and seam that he gets. It sort of added an extra. Basically, what I'm trying to say is him getting older and slower might have actually aided his bowling, I've realised. Well, what you're really displaying is a lack of knowledge for the game, actually, because when you're playing someone like that, the the thing that you don't want to do is just plod your foot down the wicket and leave yourself exposed to getting smashed on the shin. Um, the reason the keeper stands up is because guys bat out of their crease to try and negate the LBW. So people make it obvious that they're standing three feet out of their crease and the umpire thinks that the ball has too far to travel before it's going to hit the stumps to be able to make a decision. Um, so it stops people doing that and makes them play from the crease, which is why in that game, when you watch the highlights, a lot of the wickets when the keeper's up to the stumps are people getting caught on the crease and either bowled through the gate or LBW. And it's added an extra dimension. I think the the yard of pace that he has lost has counted to his vulnerable advantage when, um, <laughs> when when it comes to taking those wickets. That's exactly oh, what I mean. That's exactly who's, who's, I think he's getting better the slower he gets. Who's who's the bat? Isn't there a batter? Is it Phil Salt? Who, who finds him absolutely horrendous to play against because he, he's, Phil Salt's a very sort of aggressive front foot kind of basher. And he kind of assumes that Tim Murta shouldn't be allowed to bowl at him. 
And the result is he well, big he mistake, yeah, because every, every time. Well, it, the thing is, he's unbelievably skillful, and his main skill is he he doesn't bowl many bad balls, so he hits the stickers on the bat a majority of the time, and he picks up pace off the wicket. So what comes out of his hand seems a certain pace, and then as soon as it hits the pitch, it nips and it picks up pace off the pitch, and that's his great skill, and that's why he beats so many people by the ball deviating off the surface. Do you, do you think that, you know, because there's a lot of, we had Lawrence Booth on, didn't we, last week, um, being slightly despondent about the way the T20 revolution is going and the effect that that might have um, on players. But we fixate quite a lot about stats. And if you play all your life as a bowler in T20, unless you're Rashid Khan, you're never really going to get sort of eye-watering stats. It's, oh, I finished my career with an economy rate of 6.75. Well, I suppose that's because you've not, it's not been built up over time, has it? Yeah, I'd imagine I when people degree. played, when first-class cricket had only been played for 10 years, people are probably saying, well, what does this all mean? And what's the what's the yeah. reasoning of it? Um, there's a, there's T- a truth to that. And, T20 and also, cricket, there's only been 20 years of T20, isn't there? Yeah, and, and a thousand wickets. You know, if you said someone had taken a thousand wickets, 45 years ago, they said, well, you know, big wow. Wilf Rhodes took 4,187 or something first-class wickets because they played 35 first-class matches a season and he played for 35 years or something ridiculous. But, you know, if somebody dedicates themselves to playing red ball cricket, they can get these eye-watering stats. We had it with Jimmy Anderson not that long ago when he took his 1,000th first-class wicket. He's up to 1,088, I think, now. Uh, Mertz is about... 56 wickets away, I think, from a 1,000 first-class wickets. Those are sort of things that give you posterity, don't they? I mean, it's, it's so rare in the modern world for someone to take that number of wickets. Yeah, but they do really now. Huge. They do now, but in 20 years' time, people might look at it and think, well, what what does that mean? People might not understand it. Yeah, I think it's all relative to the time but it's certainly a dying art so I think Mark Ramprakash was the last person to score a hundred hundreds wasn't he although the way yep. Chiteshwar Pajara is playing at the moment he could he could get somewhere close to that he just seems to churn them out every single week but, and that felt like a massive feat at the time and you think guys go and have a very good career and get 30 first class hundreds he's got a hundred of them and Tendulkar the same isn't it a hundred international hundreds although Kohli might end up getting close um, he might get somewhere near to that um, in international cricket. But yeah, I think the, the the T20 inception is going to lead to statistics becoming very different, I think, in 20 years from now. It, it's so true as well, what you say about that with T20 and, and white ball cricket in general, that sort of, I remember when I first started watching ODI cricket in the late 90s, that a good economy rate, you know, people were, bought, I mean, Glenn McGraw, I've got his stats in front of me here, his economy rate in ODIs, now I know that he's one of the greatest fast bowlers of all time, possibly the greatest. His economy rate in ODIs was 3.8. <laughs> I mean, that is ridiculous. <laughs> Imagine now running in in the modern game with an economy rate of 3.8. I mean, anything just over five now is magnificent, basically. Yeah, I mean, not, not as good as Vic Marks. He's, he's got the best economy rate of any England bowler in one-day internationals who's played more than 20, I think. 
What is it? What is it? Something silly. So yeah, it's about three point six five or something stupid. Yeah. That is yeah. just about just 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 letting the ball go past outside off stump. Well, if he's bowling good areas, there's nothing you can do with that. Well, he, bowled, not... he bowled flat off spin as well, Vic, and he, and he would admit that. <laughs> um, well, it'll be fascinating to see. But yeah, I mean, Tim Murta, I mean, a, a genuine legend. I know Finney like take the piss out of him because he's a mate of yours, and he does bowl backwards at times, and that's me saying that. So that's really insulting. But um, I mean, a proper proper legend, and any signs of him slowing down doesn't look like it at the moment he's just taking the temper well that's it well he's this year he's in a player coach role um so when he's not performing on the pitch or not picked or or having a rest or something he's there relaying all his information um and i think he's really enjoying that actually and enjoying that element of responsibility uh, after captain in the last year or so the the club as well so yeah he's certainly looks as though he's not slowing down and I think if they keep producing nibbly ones at Lords that um that are good for that type of bowling then I see no reason why he can't he can't keep going. The only thing is that he has to if he has to face anyone with any pace at the moment when he's batting, um you're probably for his own safety better off declaring, I'd say. How how is he in the field? Well I've not seen firsthand for a little while. Um but I'll take that as shit. Well, he's a forty-one-year-old man. What do you, what do you expect? So he's Jimmy Anderson, he's excellent in the field. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's slightly different body shapes, um, but yeah, I, I think he's functional in the field. He's still got a very good throwing arm. Whether he'd steam to the fence and do a one-handed sliding stop, I'm not quite so sure. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure if you're listening, Tim, that you can, you've still got that in the locker. He's uh, not. Well, don't worry. No, don't worry. Unless he's in <laughs> Japan. Uh, well, from the sublime to the ridiculous, because did you see Eddie Byram's bowl in the county championship? So it, it was petering towards a draw. And they brought on the part-time bowling of Eddie Byram. And it was Leicestershire's Rishi Patel who was batting, who at the time was on 134 not out. And Eddie Byram ran in and bowled. And I can't work out from the video what he was trying to achieve. But I think he's trying to bowl off spin. And he ends up releasing it somewhere near his toes. And it bounces four times. To be fair to Rishi Patel, he plays an immaculate forward defensive to the delivery. But at that point... First slip, leg slip, and wicketkeeper fall over laughing at the state of the delivery, and it's a and it's a wonderful it's a wonderful thing to watch. It's also not a great advert for when people criticise the county championship and they post things like that. I'm like, well, that's not an everyday occurrence, I promise. Um, but Steve at Finn, didn't, didn't, got... sorry, didn't didn't the, didn't the umpire immediately call stumps as well? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's it. I'm not watching any more of this. I've seen enough. I've seen enough. There are times when I'm like. The captain should be able to shake hands earlier than this. Don't they say as well that um, in terms of stat padding, I mean, Richard Patel's walked off there of 134 not out. Um, but Finney, it got me wondering, what is the worst delivery that you've ever bowled in your career? And a few dodgy ones. The worst delivery I've ever bowled. Where it went horribly wrong and it was so well, far I was just, away. I think there was a game against Pakistan in Dubai, actually. And... I was bowling well. It's probably the best I ever bowled in my career. 2012, if, if Wisden are listening. Um, <laughs> I was on four for 34, and I'd got four for 34 in the previous game. Well, no, I wouldn't have been four for 34. It would have been four for 33 at the time, and I'd got four for 34 in the last game. And I was like, I'm going to try and bowl a Yorker here to try and knock his stumps out the ground. It was Wahab Riaz bowling at a tail ender. Um, I fancied five for in an, in an ODI. I was going to get greedy and go away from the plan that had worked for me up until this point. 
And I run up, tried to bowl a Yorker, and I bowled an in-swinging, head-high, full toss <laughs> at him. Um, and he ducked underneath it. So I missed my length by about 20 yards. And and yeah, he ducked underneath it. And everyone was laughing and smiling because it didn't hit him, thankfully. But yeah, that comes to mind as the ball that has gone the furthest away from where I was trying to bowl it. I mean, I bowled oh, plenty was... of pies in my career, but... Pies are different, aren't they? I was going to suggest the above waist high wide full toss you bowled to John Simpson in that twenty nine runs. No, because that my intentions were correct. That I was trying to bowl a wide Yorker. Um, uh, I just missed it by about five foot. This one was a head high. Yeah, this was this one was a head high full toss. So <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> what about uh, what about hat trick balls? Have you ever completely wasted any hat trick deliveries? No, I've been unlucky a number of times actually on a hat trick in international cricket. I think I've had the opportunity to get, I reckon it's four hat tricks against Australia. I've been on a hat trick four times against Australia and I've beat the edge three times of that four. And then the fourth one, I can't remember what the other one was, but I've beat the edge three out of the four times I've been on a hat trick against Australia and never actually quite found it. Oh, you would have been a shoe in for the Wisdom Cricket of the Year if you'd taken four hat tricks against. I wouldn't Australia. have thought so. Not how much all those press blokes hate me. They love. They well. Yeah, look, maybe they do. But I've got to say that, that when when a hat trick ball goes wrong, that is the moment when broadcasters get particularly angry because we're so selfish and it's all about us that all we want is to call the hat trick ball. So when you get the hat trick and you like set everything up and you're thinking, right, this is going to get clipped up. It's going to be put on the front page of the BBC. It's going to be fantastic. Hat trick. I'm going to scream like a lunatic. And then they bowl some filth down the leg side. You get so angry with a bowler when they do that. And it happens so many times. So, you know, well done you, Finney, for beating the edge three times. There you go, Finney. Getting congratulated on wickets you didn't even take now. Brilliant. <laughs> That's what it's come to. Just the odd good ball in my career is now getting me praise. <laughs> take it. I've got 970 odd wickets as well. You can celebrate my thousandth if I get there. Yeah, but it's all for me, it will always be about the balls that beat the outside edge. You know, the one, <laughs> they'll be the ones that I always remember you for. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, now, speaking about a man who's taken lots of wickets, Stuart Broad. So we talked about him last week. He claimed he had invented a new delivery specifically for the earlier mentioned Steve Smith and Marnus Labuschagne. And when he described it, it turns out Stuart Broad has invented, and it's very clever this, a ball that swings away from the right-handed batsman, bringing the wicketkeeper and slips into play. Yes, that's right. Stuart Broad has invented that on the eve of the Ashes. Uh, well, Stuart Broad was in the press again this week and he was talking about Australia's 4-0 Ashes series win in 2021 to 2022 and he doesn't count it as a series. Quite right. He said, nothing was harsher than the last Ashes series. In my mind, I don't class it as a real Ashes. The definition of Ashes cricket is elite sport with lots of passion and players at the top of their game. Nothing about that series was high-level performance because of the COVID restrictions, the training facilities, the travel, not being able to socialise. I've written it off as a void series. That's what Stuart Broad said to the Daily Mail this week. And uh, I, for one, completely agree, don't you, Daniel? Well, slightly. I mean, I would say that the definition of Ashes cricket is when England play against Australia. And uh, indeed, if you see Calthorpe's dismissal in the 1936-37 Ashes, you would not describe that as high-level, top-class cricket. The first ball of that Ashes series were rather hilarious. I'd go and Google it if I were you. But he is essentially absolutely right. And I'm going to give him a few more pieces of ammunition. Um, 1946-47 and 1948, England were forced to play Australia when... All of England's team were essentially emaciated by living on rations of sawdust after the war, while the Australians were munching on barramundi. Um, you may recall that Don Bradman skipped the Second World War through apparently injury, which kept him out of that contest for six years. And then strangely, he came back to his um, to his brightest best. So the 1948 series, the Invincibles, they don't count. That's just a series of memorial games, especially because England did lose their best bowler to uh, death in the Second World War, Edley Verity, <laughs> uh, unfortunately absent for that reason. 1920 uh, 21 and 1921 as well. They don't count. Non-Ashes series for the same reason. First World War. Um, basically, most of England's players were <laughs> unpickable through um, being in uh, uh, paradise. Uh, 1989, I don't count because Alan Border refused to chat to anybody, which was just, I mean, that's not top level sport. He, uh, he, he refused to have anything to do with England's players. We're all very chatty, so that, that's unacceptable. Um, there are a fair, fair few more. 1936-37, absolute abomination, that series. So England go 2-0 up, and the quizzling traitor Gubby Allen, who's well-known to Stephen Finn as he would pass the Warner and Allen stands, two of the most corrosive and dreadful influences on English cricket ever to exist. No surprise that they're commemorated at Lords. Gubby Allen went out to Australia, half Australian he is, right, or was, half Australian. They sent him as captain after body line to repair bridges so that everything was all cushy. And by accident, England being very good, went 2-0 up. And so we were then forced to lose the next three matches under the captaincy of Gubby Allen. So that 
absolutely definitely doesn't count because he was a genuine grizzling traitor in the England camp. It'd be basically like making Ben Stokes captain of Australia. It's just completely bang out of order. Um, and there must be a fair few others. I mean, Finney, you only ever played in winning size, didn't you? Yep. Did you? Yeah, you did, didn't well, you? I, I was there for losing series. I was there. Well, I was only there for one losing series, 2013. But I didn't play a game because I was so bad. I didn't even warrant getting on the pitch. But yeah, every Ashes series that I played in, um, I won. Yeah. Um, and, and, and sort of all the way through the 90s, I think it's not fair uh, for a couple of reasons. Australia had McGrath and Warren, which is like a cheat code, basically. And uh, secondly, they had an actual academy and they trained their players, whereas our players flew around in tiger moths and generally pissed around in the opera and um, uh, and, and didn't really play much in the way of cricket. So I wouldn't really describe a lot of those series as um, top-level sport since they had the Rod Marsh Academy and uh, we had... Well, what did we have? What happened in the 90s? No one remembers the 90s English cricket. We like to blank that out of our memories entirely, to be honest, apart from Butcher's 100. Um, apart, from, we, yeah, apart from Butcher's 100. Which I think we yeah. still make commemorative plates for. But, but everything that else... Been, that might have been 2001, though. So, yeah. uh, yes, you're right. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's why we remember it so fondly, because we blanked out the whole of the 90s. Uh, also, it's worth mentioning in that series that Stuart Broad talked about, was when he ran into bowl, got into his delivery stride, stopped, and then shouted at the robot camera for driving around in the oh, background. Yeah. So that whole series really is null and void for a number of reasons. Uh, Finney, Stuart Broad, he's entertaining, isn't he? He is, yes. He's a master of whipping up a frenzy. Um, he's done it a number of times, haven't they? The 2013-14 Ashes where he took five for, in the first innings of the first test at Brisbane, the or Brisbane Courier Mail or something had printed on the front cover of him just completely blanked out saying he who must not be named um, does it again or something like that or <laughs> we're going to boo him here or it was something like getting stuck into him and he walked into the press conference in his flip-flops and, and with the paper under his arm and sort of sat there and read it in front of all the press so <laughs> yeah he's, he's the master of whipping people up into a frenzy especially Australians I, I like that because normally that is the Australians doing that to us. And yet I like we need a Stuart Broad to sort of come back at them for. There's also his not walking when he absolutely middled one to first slip off the bowling of Ashton Agar. Um, but the, he's always backed up against Australia. That's the key. I mean, I would be with my huge, you know, crippling self-doubt. I would always be terrified of sticking my neck out and doing things like that because then there's a good chance I'm going to run in and bowl and Steve Smith and Marnus Labuschagne are going to make me look very, very stupid. But Broad backs himself to deliver and delivers all of the time. Finney, you didn't tend to go down the route that Broad went down. No, I'm obviously not as good as him. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's not in my character to be making statements like that because I'm similar to you. I've suffered from imposter syndrome for the last 20 years of playing professional sports. So, yeah, to go out there and make outlandish statements and stuff that I then have to go and back up is um, is a lot harder for me. I would say I are on the other side. I talk myself down and then it's a complete surprise if I end up doing well. Um, and I've managed to survive playing cricket for um, for 15 years doing that. What you should do is a bit like Glenn McGrath's done since, you know, the last few years is... 
he predicts 5-0 to Australia every single series. In fact, he's already done his 5-0 prediction for this upcoming Ashes. I think he said, really exciting what Stokes and McCullum are doing. Going to be really tight. Going to be exciting test matches. 5-0 Australia. But, uh, Finney, once you officially hang up your boots, you should just start just absolutely gunning for the Aussies because you, you don't have to prove it anymore. You're, you're retired. You don't have to actually go and bowl against them. Well, I, t- I don't think I'm going to have to bowl at them anyway. I could play for another <laughs> six years and I can't imagine I'm going to get called up to a, to an England Ashes team. So, yeah, I think I'm pretty safe. Just start calling regard. them pricks. Call them no, pricks. But, but it's difficult, isn't it? Because then when you're a broadcaster and you're there hanging around the boundary, you've then got to interact with them and maybe one day I'll even have to interview them. And you don't want to bring that animosity into the interview. So, yeah, I, I can't imagine that that's something that I'm going to end up doing because I'd just be far too awkward around people when I had to actually face them face to face. Give it 10 years when you're you're more bitter. And um... Oh, I'm bitter already. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm as bitter as they come. <laughs> I always thought like, when I played... Um, for England in the early days and you'd have these fellas who would have played in the 80s and 90s and not got paid very much to um, to play without central contracts and stuff and you always think oh, can't these blokes just be happy for us that that we're doing all right and it's now gone full circle because now I'm here sat here looking at these 12 month long IPL contracts that people are reportedly being offered and you do feel like you missed the boat but I think that's just the generation of life isn't it and I think, yeah, you just have to accept it and be happy with what you've got and move on. I'll tell you what. You'd never be on this. You'd never be on this podcast if you had that. You probably wouldn't have Ethel, Mm. you know, and you wouldn't be. I'd have 20 Ethels probably. Who's going to look after them? You'd have have an Ethel. You'd pay someone, obviously. I've got a cat sitter already called Phoebe, who they much prefer more than me. So, yeah, well, there's that. But you just, you wouldn't get the chance to interact with any of your Ethels if you were having to go to do the Saudi Arabian T20 followed no, by the UAE I'm, T20. I'm only tongue-in-cheek. I mean, it'll be, you'd hate it. Genuine question, Finney, right? As you sit there bitter at all the money being thrown No, around. I'm not. I'm only playing. I'm playing. <laughs> no, I know, I know. But genuine question. So, and Norcross, uh, you can answer this as well. So, Stephen Finn, peak Stephen Finn that should have won Wisdom Cricket of the Year and was robbed. If Chris Morris goes for 1.6 million in the IPL auction, peak Stephen Finn. What is peak Stephen Finn worth in the IPL? Well, I think there'd have to be a number of factors taken into account. Seeing as I peaked when I was in my early 20s, you would imagine that a franchise would look at that and be like, oh, this could be a 10-year investment. They talked Mm -hmm. about Harry Brook and Cameron Green as being investments. That's a similar age to I was when when I was doing relatively well for England. There's almost there's no guarantee that you're going you're going to get picked up ever either was there. Um but I think there were probably two years where if I if I was then I could have got picked up. Um because I was bowling well and bowling quick and did particularly well against India in ODI series um which I think counts for a lot. So um yeah, well, I I don't know. I'm not going to throw figures around. I might have paid myself 25 grand, just below what I got for playing in the 100 last year, maybe. <laughs> 20, 2013 IPL. 2013 IPL, so off the back of that. Terrific. I mean, genuinely, he, he did bowl incredibly well in that ODI series of, of 2012. November or something, November, December 2012. 11, that was 2011. That was 11. So if you're in IPL 2012, they still had a lot of money then. I mean, 
Oh, didn't Dan Christian go for like eight hundred thousand around then? Something I like think. That. I think Pete Finney's over a mil. He's over a mil. One point four. I go. Yeah. I mean, I mean obviously, doesn't doesn't give you a great deal with the bat, but he'd be very reliable up top. You, he's have fielder. To I think you're a decent fielder. Take take some blinders at short mid wicket. Don't make him run around the boundary too much. That would be. It's just not a nice sight. How do you uh, think the Watford wall, the batting, would have fared in the IPL? Well, I'll tell you well, what. Watching, watching Abit Mishra yesterday, he'd have done very. He'd have done a bit better than that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, though. If there was anywhere to bat, you'd want to bat in the first six overs. The brand new ball, you would have to face some people with some pace, which would be a problem for me. But yeah, a little pinch hitting roll at the top of the order. Pinch hitting in the IPL, Finney reckons. Every every bowler fancies <laughs> themselves as a batter because when you're bowling, you feel so exposed. Like you're bowling with the brand new ball against a very good player and they've got two fielders out and it just seems like sometimes they've just got your number and you get carted all over the place. Sometimes it works to your advantage because you can build some great pressure. But yeah, on those days where you end up going around the park, you you want fielders everywhere. And and as a bowler, you're always confident. You, you could inflict that at least once on someone else. Do, do, you, do you remember that stage where in the domestic T20 blast, Every team became obsessed with putting a bowler at the top of the order. So didn't Nottingham Swanee batted at three for Nottinghamshire. Swanee did it. Graham Napier did it for Essex. Darren Darren Goff opened for Yorkshire. Yeah, there was uh, um, a fella called Melvin Betts for Middlesex. Yeah, um, he did it for Middlesex. Neil Carter at Warwickshire. Yeah, he scored yeah. some. He, he teed off a few times as well. He actually, was a good slogger. Yeah, yeah, they literally just put a bowler at the top of the order. Um, and everyone became obsessed with it. And then after a few years of that, everyone realised, oh, we could just put the really good, like, Joss Butler characters at the top of the order instead. Well, no one argues about that now, do they? I think there was a while where people were like, well, Joss Butler's your best finisher. He should be batting in the middle order. And now he's arguably the best opening T20 batter in the world. Yeah, it, it always, that always struck me as insane. You've only got 20 overs. Yeah. But put the person who's most effective... At the very top. And whilst it, there's two fielders outside the circle, yeah, <laughs> yeah, let him go bananas at the top of the order. Yeah, it would like cut to like, you know, no disrespect, but it would be like Milan and somebody else really struggling out in the middle and it would cut to Joss Butler sat there padded up and like 18.4 overs had gone. And you'd be like, what, what on earth are we doing? <laughs> Surely he should be out there batting. Well, Finney, there we go. Just in case you weren't already upset enough, we all agree you would have fetched easily over a million pounds in the IPL at your peak. I don't agree with that. I wouldn't have paid a million for me, no way. Oh, no, it would have been a terrible investment. We're just saying that's what we think they would have done. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, on that note, Finney, um, when when you say goodbye to us now, you can think until we see you next week about the time you missed out on Wisdom Cricket of the Year and the time you missed out on millions in the IPL. Uh, But Daniel's got something. Before we go. waving his cigarette at me because he's got something he needs to say. But before we go, we're a very patriotic podcast. And, oh, yes. Um, this is the last podcast we're going to do with an uncrowned king, mm. you know, f- for a while. And so I just wanted to ask, you know, what, what are you guys up to? You've got street parties planned. You've got like your paper hats and um, your, your coronation quiche lined up. By the way, it's not a quiche because it's got spinach in. And according to Lorraine, not the person, the place, you know, quiche Lorraine, it comes from Lorraine near Alsace, Lorraine. A quiche is only a quiche if it does not contain vegetables. Otherwise, it's a vegetable pie. But I'll let that slide. The coronation quiche. Will you be you be uh, imbibing on that? What What are your plans for Saturday? 
I'm um, I'm going to be getting the train, the 950 train from Hove to London. We've got friends who have a flat in southwest London, near Sands End, actually, who are hosting a coronation party. So we are going there to sit on their terrace and watch the coronation on a TV in their living room. Yeah. Well, good for you. So you're not going to get um, entombed in the Tower of London. Uh, what about you, Tobes? Sadly... Sadly, um, I will not be able to uh, watch and swear my allegiance to uh, King Charles because I have got my first cricket game, well, proper cricket game of the season. Um, and when the main bit's about half 11, isn't it? Women will swear yeah, allegiance to him. They've, they've given him his new fancy hat. And then um, I think about 11.30, uh, we'll, be do- we'll be doing the warm-up. I'll be um I'll be I'll be warming up probably so uh, I'll be paying tribute to King Charles by using resistance. Why do bands. they not stop? Why do they not stop? What you use resistant bands warm up for Mickey Mouse cricket? You're yeah, joking. because 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 I'm because got... you just get out the car and go straight out there <laughs> and bowl. You don't yeah. warm up. Uh, no, because I've got the body of a ninety-year-old man. I've got the worst body on this podcast, which yeah, is saying frail. something. I'd say Norcross's body looks more resilient. Well, Norcross is a hundred, and 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 you're you're made of glass nowadays, and yet somehow I'm still the worst person on this podcast in terms of the show so well, are, we well, resist- I, are we using I, resistance bands in tribute to the king i, I am i'm very impressed by that that is that's proper dedication to the cause and, it, and it's what the king would have wanted i think toby and i'm very pleased to hear that i, I have taken one for the team um because obviously being quite a patriotic organization as well the bbc uh someone had to commentate the double header ipl match which starts at 11 and so I sadly am going to miss it all, but I will be uh, calling on on whatever listeners there are out there at around about 11.27, just after I believe the King would have been asked to receive the rod of equity and mercy from the that's, Archbishop of Canterbury. That's how I <laughs> enter the bedroom when I see Pippa. It's true. Are you, <laughs> have you, hang on, hang on, Finney. If you don't believe me, you wait till you get to that bit. It's a very, it's a very poignant what, part. The Archbishop of Canterbury is going to get his rod out, is he? At that's correct. Yeah, and the king's exactly. going to receive that's right. it. That's right. Yeah, you, you think I'm joking. I, because I wasn't going to get to watch King, King Chuck's um, coronation, I've watched um, all of Queen Elizabeth's in preparation. And there's a terrific moment when the high-pitched voiced Archbishop of Canterbury turns to the 27-year-old Queen Elizabeth and says, Receive the rod of equity and mercy. And I presume the same will be true of, uh, of, of our noble King Charles III. And just after he receives that rod, I shall be calling on our listeners to swear. Uh, and uh, and I, I, I hope and trust that they will do what they think is right. Well, I'm off to Google the <laughs> rod of equity and mercy. I'll keep my safe search on. And uh, I will One see... last thing. I have sent you both pictures of Ai Weiwei and Eugene Terra Blanche. And you take a very quick look at that and tell me if those two people don't look like, if you put them together, they're like the first person. It's just an old man with a beard. Is it, is what... <laughs> I'm outraged. I'm posting like... them on Twitter. A peek behind the zero dots given curtain here. Our producer Sal couldn't join us live on this Zoom call, so he's left us unattended. And so all he's seen in our WhatsApp group is Daniel Norcross send those photos to the WhatsApp group. And producer Sal, bless him, who spends every week tearing his hair out, has just messaged saying, how have you got on to South African nationalists? (laughs) Sal (laughs) turns his back for one moment 
and this is what happened. Well, on that cheery note, uh, I'll see you both next week. But um, enjoy the coronation weekend, chaps. Cheers. Thank you. Love to Diane. Sports Social Podcast Network.